listening to the Citizens Church podcast. Citizens Church exists to saturate Bryan College Station, Texas with the good news and love of Jesus. To learn more about Citizens Church, visit us online at citizensbcs.com. Today's message is from Kevin Still. May we be a church that is never content with affection alone. But rather, may we be a church that strives to exercise love well, okay? And what I mean by that is this, that affection, which is wonderful, uh, can just easily be uh, defined by a synonymous term, just fondness. C.S. Lewis said that one of the primary criteria for affection is familiarity. Um, He said that it's, it's a part of love, but it's not fully love. It's like that in Lewis's own words, it's like that gin is the base of many drinks, but it's not the full drink, right? Same with affection. It's part of love, but it's not fully love realized. Because love, uh, because affection is based on familiarity, it can often be taken for granted. Affection is often static and passive. It can even be very silent. It's kind of where we fall sometimes. I'm a teacher, and I often have students come to me and tell me how much they love their other teachers, And I say, have you told them? Well, I couldn't do that. Why? (laughs) Tell them, right? If you have this affection for them, take it one step further and love them by sending an email and saying thank you, by approaching them after class and saying, you know, you really see me in a unique way. Like, take it a step further. And that's what I mean by may we never be content with affection alone and silent, but let's take that step forward in love. Again, affection can often be static and passive and silent, but full-blown love is dynamic, and it is very active, and it is very expressive. Um, and the way that I like to say this is that affection is the image, and love is the animation. So um, I wrote that. <laughs> Affection is the image. <laughs> Love is the animation. Take that, Lewis. So, um, all right, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to actually get into the passage for today, which when I saw the passage for today a few weeks ago, I was like, great, this is a good passage. And the closer it's gotten, the more terrified I've been of it. So it's had to do some work on me. Uh, Krista Merrill preached on truth recently, and there's this wonderful uh, quote by David Foster Wallace that says, the truth will set you free but not until it is finished with you. That's how I felt preparing for today. So um, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our collective heart be pleasing in your sect. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be for just a moment, and then we're going to flip back into the Old Testament. So uh, get ready. Your fingers will be flying a little bit. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. This is such a familiar passage, and this is one of the places that Jesus gets good street cred as a teacher. People like this little saying that he has here. So let's read this together, beginning in verse 43. Jesus says, stand up. What are we doing? This is the word of God. 
This is the word. I mean, we were, Austin, you got us while we were standing. Good on you. Stand up. This is the word of God. What are we doing here? It's red letters even. It says it right here. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors, my apologies to the IRS, do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Um, if you, I think I misread that. Uh, do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thank you. A couple of things we need to say about this passage uh, very quickly before we really dive into it is that first of all, this is the last of the statements that Jesus is making where he's like, you've heard it said. We've gone through several of these recently. You've heard it said, you've heard it said. And then Jesus comes back and says, but I say to you, and then here we are again with, you have heard it said. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Interestingly enough, there is no place in the Old Testament that says this at all. This was just kind of one of those um, kind of unwritten ideas that people assumed and brought into uh, modern day church life. It would be like every denomination kind of has their certain rules. It says this is what makes us who we are, right? So like if I grew up Southern Baptist, so uh, you have heard it said, don't dance, right? It doesn't actually say that in the Bible, but that's kind of like there's certain things we've kind of adopted for whatever reason that we've said that's what we're going to do around here. And, and so it was um, back at this time. Now, where did teachers at the time get the idea to love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Well, read the Old Testament. There's some really interesting places where God has told his chosen people, hey, go over there and kill them all and take their stuff, right? That happened a few times. Um, that's problematic. We gotta, we, what happened there? What's that story about? Well, God set his people apart, right? He made his people unique. And there's a lot going on in the Old Testament that we could dig into about what was happening in some of those other nations. But God said, I want to set you apart and make you a favorable nation. When we get into the book of Psalms, and we're about to do a whole series on psalms here soon, and we're going to talk about some psalms that are uncomfortable. We like the psalms because they are pretty, and then all of a sudden you come across some psalms that are heavy because they start calling down judgment on other people. We call these the imprecatory psalms. So between some of these stories that, uh, where we, we, we see God telling his people, like, hey, go over there and ransack this, uh, these neighboring nations. And then when we get into the Psalms and we've been praying, our prayer book actually says, hey, God called down something on these people. Between that, that gave us permission to come up with this idea of you can love your neighbor, but hate your enemy, right? And you notice that the word actually is neighbor. Uh, thanks to Fred Rogers, we use a very positive connotation with that word neighbor, but that was kind of literally like you know, you need to love the person that is close to you, that shares things in common with you, but the person who does not share things in common with you, you can call them your neighbor and you can hate them. 
right? So um, now that's the first thing. This was not actually a law. This is where Jesus is kind of coming in and going, I'm going to correct your hearts because you've adopted a doctrine that is not okay. And I want to rewrite it. So that's the first thing I want to point out. It kind of makes sense how they came up with this idea. Like, we don't want to harp too badly on them, because if you read the Old Testament, you can be like, wow, it got really violent back there for a minute, right? So we see where they came up with the idea. The second thing that I want to point out most immediately about this passage is that when Jesus is addressing hate here, I I made a mess. Um, I spilled water on the table. Um, When Jesus is talking about hate in this particular passage, he is not talking about like a murderous hate. And we're going to, this is where we kind of want to unpack what is Jesus talking about with this kind of hate? You can love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And Jesus comes in and says, no, I want you to love your enemy. This kind of hate that Jesus is talking about is not that murderous hate that he has already referenced and that Pastor Ben talked about recently in Matthew 5, uh, 38 through 42. This is a very different kind of hate that honestly might be more devious in a particular way. So while this is a a very familiar passage, I want to unpack this passage and what kind of hate Jesus is referencing by looking at an amazingly familiar story, probably one that we don't think about enough and talk about enough, but you all know. And in fact, I believe that we know the story so much that I'm going to ask you guys to tell the story to me very quickly. And it is the story of Jonah. All right, we're going to go back to Jonah If you want to go back there with me real quick, we're going to talk about Jonah. He is in between. Who's he in between in the Old Testament? If you got a phone, you're like, he's just in between these little buttons I can press. He's in between Micah and Obadiah in the Old Testament. So you can go there. So here's what I'm going to do. There's four chapters in in Jonah, and there's kind of like some things that happen along the way in each of those chapters. And there's kind of like four parts of this room. And so I'm just going to challenge you. I I want to hear, chronologically speaking, what happens in the story. I'm going to start over here with you guys. How does the story of Jonah start? So what do we, what's the first story, a bit of the story of Jonah? Who can tell me? (laughs) Hello, church. Um, God commissions Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. Thank you. Good detail. And does he do that? No. Jonah says, I'm not going to do that. What happens next? Here we are in the middle. People are like looking at me. Do not put that microphone. What happens next? What happens next? What's that? Jonah hides, hides from God. Jonah hides from God. And where does he hide from God? No. <laughs> not in a bush. What's that? He's going to go to Tarshish, right? How is he going to get to Tarshish? On a boat. He gets on a boat and he's going to run from God, right? What happens when he gets... Okay, here we are. What happens next? He's on the boat. He's running from God. What happens next? He... What? For lunch. Why does he get eaten for lunch? Because the whale's hungry? Okay. Okay, wait, wait. He's what? There's a storm. God sends a storm. And they, we have to figure out that Jonah, Jonah is the reason God sent the storm, right? Because he's been disobedient. And so he gets thrown over, right? Actually, what's interesting about the story is the guys, like once they find out it's Jonah, they keep him on the boat. Like these guys are, like they're pagan sailors, but they're nice about it, 
right? They're like, well, let's try to say, and it just gets worse. And finally, Jonah's like, throw me in the ocean. So they're like, okay. And then they like cry out for forgiveness and throw Jonah in the ocean. And he's eaten by a whale, right? What happens next? He's in the whale, obviously, because he's eaten by it. And then what happens next? Anybody? He what? He repents. Uh, ish. Yeah. He repents ish. Yeah. Nice. And then what happens? He gets spit out. And then what does he promptly do once he's spit out? Everybody's like, we know this one. He goes to Nineveh, right? Great. That was awesome. Jonah is such a short book. It's four little chapters. You can read it in a single sitting. And I'm going to tell you this right now. If it's been a minute since you read Jonah, go back and read Jonah later today. Don't read it in your like Sunday school, like taking it super serious. Like, mm. like read it as a story because you'll realize it's bananas. Jonah is grumpy. He's super grumpy. He gets told to go to Nineveh to preach. And guys, Nineveh is not a good place. You can find out about Nineveh in this part of the Bible called the Old Testament. And he's told to go there and he's like, I'm not doing that. And so he does get on a boat and tries to escape God by going to Tarshish. And yes, the storm comes. He gets thrown overboard. Now, something interesting that he says is this. Like, what have you done? What have you done that God sent the storm? The sailors ask this. Jonah says, he says, I'm, I'm running from God. Well, what God do you serve? I serve the God who created land and sea. He's trying to get away from God on a boat. The same God who created the sea. That doesn't make any sense. He goes into the fish. And by the way, in the fish, Jonah never fully repents, by the way. Never says anything about take care of the sailors. If anything, he kind of calls the sailors like idolaters, right? And he never fully apologizes to God. He just is like, God, thanks for saving my skin when I went in the water. I'll do the things I said I would do. But he never said he would go to Nineveh, right? He never actually said that part. Um, he gets out, he goes to Nineveh, he preaches a sermon that's just like, this place is going to burn. And he walks her over here, this place is going to burn. And he goes over here, this place is going to burn. And in response, not only do the people put on sackcloth and they cover the cows in sackcloth and ashes and the cows repent. It's in the story. I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> where we want to focus, though, is after that part where in Jonah chapter 4, God and Jonah have this conversation about, because we don't know until this point up to chapter four, the very end of the story, why does Jonah run away from God? Uh, why does Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? And this is where we kind of get a reflection of what Jesus is talking about when he was talking about love your enemies. It says it right here in Jonah chapter four, verses one through four, if you're following along with me. Um, now, Nineveh has repented. We don't get one of those awesome sermons from Jonah like you get in the book of Acts that goes on for like a chapter or something. We just get, this place is going to burn. And it's like eight words is his whole sermon, okay? He actually tells them, he uses a similar word uh, that is used about Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's pretty much like, there, no, there's going to be like fire and brimstone. God's going to overtake you like Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course they go, not that. And there's repentance, and they do. Nineveh repents. This is great. We need to be rejoicing. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But 
it displeased Jonah exceedingly that the Ninevites um, repented, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is this is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew, look at him just pointing his finger at God. What do you see this one? I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, what are you so angry about? It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is an interesting situation. It's particularly interesting when right now we have people leaving the church because they're labeling the Bible hate speech, and we have Jonah running away from God because you're too gracious. You're just too gracious, God. Very interesting. God is too gracious. I don't like Nineveh. I don't want them to get saved. I don't want the mercy of God to fall on them. I like the idea of the fire and the brimstone falling on Nineveh. That's Jonah. I would rather that than what just happened. And Jonah, in some sense, represents kind of how maybe the Jews felt about the Gentiles sometime. We're the chosen people. We don't want all the favor to fall on the other people. That's ours. Why does the favor get to fall on the other people? Let them do their thing and let us continue to be the favored people. Jonah represents us anytime we see someone else prosper in a way that makes us cringe or seethe. Why do they get it? I want that. I worked for that. I'm faithful. That whole like older brother to the prodigal son, right? Hey, I'm the one who stuck around. Why do they get the good stuff? And this is exactly where Jonah, the story of Jonah coincides with what Jesus is talking about. Is that we can have that same heart. I don't want the mercy of God to fall on those people. I want it to fall on me. And in fact, if I'm going to be really honest, I'd be okay if the fire and brimstone fell on them. That would be just fine, right? If we go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 46, we see kind of what happened in Jonah happening on the lips of Jesus here. It says in verse, uh, I'll just go ahead and read this. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now watch this. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why do the bad people get the rain and the sun? Why do they get it? That belongs to me. That belongs to the church. That belongs to the favorable people. And that's Jonah's posture. That is the Jews standing here before Jesus going, don't give it to the Gentiles. Keep it for us. That's us often at times. And I'm just going to get really personal. That's me. This is me. I don't want those people to get, why do they get all the good stuff and I have to suffer. This is me when I'm walking over on Blinn's campus and one of these college guys shows up with a nicer car than me. Ugh. <laughs> Why does he get that? I've been working all this and I'm still driving this monster protege and you get to just roll up in here in this thing, man? That's me. This is me when I go out to eat with my little funky diet 
where I have all these restrictions and I'm watching some 20-year-old frat boy eat anything he wants. Why do you just go ahead and enjoy that? You know what? I hope it gives you, and then it starts coming out. (laughs) This is me anytime that I see folks having more babies and we can't have one. This is me. This is me standing here going, why do they get the good stuff? And I have been faithful to you and I don't. And Jesus says, what do you have to be angry about? What do you got to be angry about? Again, this is not murderous hate that we're talking about. That hatred that says that and asks those questions and takes that posture of Jonah, that is not a murderous hate. This is something like maybe grosser because this is a prideful, envious wish that God would withhold his merciful, gracious, repentive kindness and nature from others because of my emotions. That's gross. That's gross because this is actually the kind of hatred that wants the blood on God's hands and not mine. You can destroy them, God. I'm not a murderous person. Pop my collar. I don't want to go bust them myself, but you go right ahead since you're a righteous God, right? Now, what's interesting about Jonah's response, and there's some great stuff that happens in Jonah chapter four, where they get really, like, there's an interesting conversation between Jonah and God, where Jonah uh, then kind of like goes and crawls under a bush and he's pouting and then God does what God does and lets the bush die and Jonah's mad. He killed my bush. And God says, hold on a second, did you make the bush? No. Okay, you're more upset about a bush that you didn't make than the people that are involved in the story. Why don't I get to have the same kind of jealousy for the people and Jonah, if it makes you feel better, even for the cows. Read it. It says that. God even says that. Like, these, I, I made these people. Obviously, I want them, right? God says to Jonah, why are you so angry? Again, Jonah is not wanting to go into Nineveh and slay these people. He doesn't have that murderous hate. He has that prideful, envious hate. But here's something that's interesting. God's response to that prideful hate in Jonah is the exact same response that he gives to the murderous hatred of Cain back in Genesis chapter 4. After Cain kills his brother, God comes down and says, why are you so angry? And then there's a whole dialogue between Cain and God. As soon as Jonah starts crying out in his pride and his jealousy, God says, why are you so angry? It's the exact same response, which, by the way, is both interesting and scary, right? Because we like to say, well, this sin's not worse than this sin. And God says, hey, you murdered your brother. Why are you so angry? Hey, you're jealous of where I decide to put my mercy. Why are you so angry? That's a scary thing to think about. It's interesting to consider that in the story of Jonah, the pagan sailors that are on the boat are actually more merciful than Jonah, the man of God. They are. Once they find out, again, and I already said this, once, once they find out he's the reason that the storm is there, they don't immediately throw him overboard, right? The Ninevites, even the cows, are more repentant than Jonah, the man of God, right? 
God knows what he's doing. In the words of Meredith Perryman, he is redeeming his creation. And if we're not on board with that, we're going to miss out. And God gets in our face and says, why are you so angry? Right? Now, what's the takeaway for something like this? What's the takeaway from thinking about what Jesus is saying here about loving our enemies? Well, first of all, part of the takeaway is that it's completely not easy. He commands us to love and to pray and to bless people that we may have a very good reason to not want to. Go back and find out about Nineveh. They weren't great. Jonah had a reason to have an attitude about them and to probably want them to perish. In his flesh, he had that reason. God says, I'm not worried about your flesh. I'm worried about my redeeming creation. My mandate takes precedence over your emotions. Go tell them, right? So we're often asked to love, pray, bless people that we don't necessarily want to. Jesus has modeled this behavior for us beautifully by fraternizing with unsavory people and by forgiving his executioners. And Jesus knew we needed this model because the church hadn't even been established yet. But he knew that once the church was established, all these nations and all these people who had been looking over the fence at each other and going, huh, are all about to start worshiping together. And guess what? Read the book of Acts. It's awkward. Read Paul's letters. It doesn't necessarily go well. It's hard. It's hard to love people that we don't necessarily want to love and that we might have good reason to not love, particularly people we don't have affection for. So before the church was ever even fully established, Jesus set the model of what it looked like to love well and to even love people that were difficult to love. And he said all of this before the church established was ever persecuted. And what's interesting about the persecution of the church, and we know this, it comes from inside the church just as much as it comes from outside the church, does it not? And he says, you got to love them. When they persecute you, whether you call them brother or whether they're, you got to love them. You got to pray for them. What's interesting is he never says that we have to have affection for them. He says, love them, bless them. This is not easy. We live in a culture that loves, loves the controversy and wants to rile up the hate, right? We live in that. I mean, uber conservative politics isolate into self-sufficiency and suspiciously, suspiciously homogenous driven communities. That's what we do in uber-conservative politics. In uber-liberal politics, we weaponize language and identity so that we no longer even need to actually sin. We can just be who we were made, and we incur wrath. That's uber-liberal uber, uh, politics right now. And in both of those political sets, we make a neighbor-nation enemy out of other people. That's what happens. As a church of God, as a church of Christ, we don't do that. We don't. We don't participate in that. We don't bathe around in that. We don't hang around in that. And if you want a list of things that we as believers don't say about other people, come see me afterwards. Because I'll give you a list of them. They say this stuff. They call these people these things. We don't say that. We walk away and just go, I'm going to go refill my drink and go out the back door and leave. We don't do that. That's what I do. 
I ghost. I'm not good at the being like, don't say that. I'm just like, excuse me. That's, I don't know. It's not easy to pray and love and bless our enemies. Those inside the church, those outside the church. Let's get a little bit more personal. 30 years ago today, 30 years ago today, I was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma bone cancer. May 22nd, 1992. That's crazy. Friday was May 20th, and I celebrated three and a half years of sobriety from alcohol. Why am I mentioning these two dates to you? I'm mentioning these two dates to you because, as I just mentioned, the past couple of weeks have been uh, a bizarre time in my health journey. What's going on inside my body? I can easily get into these spirals of thinking where I start to ask the question, is what's happening to me something beyond my control or something I did? Because if it's something beyond my control, God, I think you can handle it. But if it's something I did, is this punishment? Now, first of all, that's bad theology. And that is an orphan spirit inside of me that is still being healed. Okay? That is not how a son of God is to hold himself and posture himself before his, his father. Right? I'm telling you that. Why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because there are some of you who are sitting here in this room that your greatest enemy is yourself. Because you have made a decision or a series of decisions, and you're sitting right here today and going, but the sun can't shine on me, and the rain won't fall on me. I don't deserve the mercy. I don't deserve the goodness of God. And some of you are truly believing that right now. And I'm going to tell you two things. One, I understand. And two, that's a lie. I've been preaching this to myself all week, okay? Laying awake at night, struggling before the Lord, going, I'm often my greatest enemy when it comes to my prayers and what I believe about the Lord. Not only do I need my theology rewritten, I need my relationship to the Father to be healed, right? And some of you are in that same place. And so, in classic Steph Lee fashion, hold your hands out, because I'm about to speak a blessing over you. Are you ready? If you are a person sitting in this room right now, and you are a person who is struggling to believe that the Lord of God, sorry, that the love of God is for you, that his reign and his son will, will shine on you and fall on you in nourishing ways, I want to say this to you. Straight out of Ephesians chapter, uh, five, uh, chapter 3, to those who are hating themselves, my response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him with both feet firmly planted, firmly on love, that you'll be able to take in with all the followers of Jesus, the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its links. Plume the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Amen. Jesus calls us to love, to pray, to bless our enemies. He does not call us to affection. But guess what? 
Sermon on the Mount, stick around because we're going to find out that Jesus says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. And if you treasure the heart of God and let him do his work on you, you might find yourself loving people that right now you can't stand. And here is a true mark that God is alive and well inside your heart is when the person at your office that you can't stand the most has a tragedy and your heart breaks. That's God alive in you, right? This is when that family member that is so much drama and so much trouble has a great success and you can't wait to celebrate with them. That's the proof of God in your life. We are not called to affection, but where your treasure is, your heart will follow. And if you make his love your treasure, it's amazing what your heart can do and accomplish. Loving our enemies requires all of the beatitude postures, every one of them. So let's look at that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To give and receive love freely, we have to recognize that everybody needs grace. Blessed are those who mourn. To give and receive love freely is to be willing to rejoice and mourn with those who rejoice and mourn. Blessed are the meek. Giving and receiving love freely requires a gentleness with ourself and with others that is actually a fruit of the Spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are told in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? Hunger for righteousness. And guess what comes along with righteousness? Peace and joy. Well, that person's not your enemy anymore. Right? That's what comes along with righteousness. Blessed are, those, blessed are the merciful. To give and receive love freely means that we have grace, the grace to withhold judgment, and instead we have uh, the grace to embody God's kindness. Scriptures say his kindness leads to repentance. Blessed are the pure in heart. To give and receive love freely, we need the wisdom of the Proverbs to know how to avoid a culture that welcomes and celebrates hate. Read the Proverbs. It will tell you who to get away from. It will tell you which radio stations to dial down. It will tell you which websites to shut, shut off. Read it. I'm telling you the truth. It will say it, right? Don't traffic with these people. Book of Proverbs will tell you that. Blessed are the peacemakers. To give and receive love freely, you need to know, truly believe that your presence, which carries the fragrance of Christ, can dismantle bombs and unshackle strongholds of bitterness. And those last two Beatitudes are actually about blessing those who persecute you, which is exactly what Jesus is saying. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those are the last two of the Beatitudes. Now, Michelle Du laughed so hard the last time I said praise band. So I'm going to call the praise band up right now. Because I love Michelle Du. And as I do so, I'm going to uh, just share a couple of things with you before we take communion. Um, one of the great pastoral voices of my life is Eugene Peterson. 
And uh, this summer we are doing a series on the Psalms. We'll talk more about the Psalms soon. He's written some great books on the Psalms, but I want to share just something that he said um, about our enemies in a book called Answering God, the Psalms as Tools for Prayer. We're not talking today about a murderous hate. We're talking about something that's a bit grosser, that's probably a bit more common to many of us, and that is that jealous, envious hate that we can have when we see the mercy of God fall on people that we don't particularly want to fall on. We don't like to talk about our hate. We like to hide it. We might mention it to our friends over happy hour, uh, or social media, uh, but we don't like to bring it out in prayer because we like to, in prayer, pretend like we're pious and good Sunday school boys and girls. This is what Eugene Peterson says. Hate is our emotional link with the spirituality of evil. Embarrassed by the ugliness and fearful of the murderous, we commonly neither admit or pray our hate. We deny it and suppress it. But if it is not admitted, it can quickly and easily metamorphose into the evil that provokes it. And if it is not prayed, we have lost an essential insight and energy in doing battle with evil evil. Hey, you want to jump up and, and take on something they call spiritual warfare? Deal with the hatred in your heart. Start there. Start there. That's what he says. Secondly, it is easy to be honest with God with our hallelujahs. It is somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hurts. It is nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. In prayer, all is not sweetness and light. The way of prayer is not to cover our unlovely emotions so that they will appear respectable, but to expose them so that they can be enlisted in the work of the kingdom. We are going to take communion today. And that's going to be good for us at a moment like this, because here's what I'm going to invite you to do. As you posture your heart before the Lord. Um, I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things. Just invite the Lord to search your heart. Invite the Lord to search your heart. Ask him to bring to mind anyone that you have that kind of jealousy for, even if it's minor. Even like, "Ah, no, 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 no stone unturned. Let the Lord search your heart. He's good, right? Let him search your heart and let him bring a name to the surface. And if that name is uh, someone close to you, great. If that person is maybe in the zeitgeist or in the culture, great. We have enemies all over the place. If that person is yourself, great. Let the Lord expose who your hatred is towards, right? Here's the second thing that I'm going to ask you to do as we take communion today. I'm going to ask you, when you take the elements and you hold them in your hands, I'm going to ask you to take the name that got exposed to your heart. And as you take the elements, thank God that his mercy falls on that person. Do you hear me? We're not going to take the communion necessarily for ourselves as much as for and hope and an intercession. God, bring your mercy to somebody. And as you do, save my soul. Do you hear me? That's what we're going to do today. So I'm going to ask you to stand Um, We have communion in the back. You can go ahead and stand. And I'm going to ask community leaders to be in the back. Some of this stuff about exploring hurt and uh, hatred can be difficult. If you want someone to pray with, there'll be some people around. But again, I'm asking you to 
let God search your heart, bring a name to the surface, and as you take communion, do so with an intercessory heart for them. I'm going to close this out with the same passage that we just read from the message. That's going to be our closing. And I like the way that Eugene Peterson does this. He brings it hard. This is, he, he brings this truth in a way that is difficult. He says this. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner can do that. Watch this part. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. You are kingdom subjects. Live like it. Live out of your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for joining us today for the message. We hope it was encouraging to you. To learn more about Citizens Church, including gathering times and locations, or to give financial support, please visit citizensbcs.com. And again, Thanks for listening to the Citizens Church Podcast.